text message us a little bit ago. So uh, this was the one time that I was always, that I've been praying, dear God, help me to be negative. <laughs> it sounds weird, but sometimes that's the right thing. I like the word favorable when it comes to medical tests because you never know which ones you want to be positive and which ones you want to be negative. In this case, negative is great, great news. And so uh, I am uh, grateful and much appreciating everyone who has been praying for me and has been uh, sending notes of encouragement through Facebook and through text messages and just feeling uh, very much a, uh, a wonderful overshadowing of prayer and blessing uh, from so many friends and uh, wonderful people who have been, uh, who have had me on their hearts and I appreciate that so very much. I tell people that I have the perfect blood type for preachers. You ready for this? Be positive! It's true, that's my blood type, but in this case, I'm glad that I could be negative and not um, and not uh, be tested positive for COVID, and I, I know there are many, many others that have not had that good fortune and not been so blessed, and so I, my heart goes out to you, my prayers for all of you, and uh, so many that are struggling with this disease, so many who have uh, loved ones who still are. We have many in our church who have uh, who have uh, loved ones who have tested positive. A few in our church who have tested positive themselves. Uh, thankfully, God has blessed us and that we have not had a major outbreak. And we are very, very appreciative of God's care and concern. Very appreciative of everyone for being uh, careful and conscious of those around us. And uh, and so it is, uh, it is a good day in the Ellen household. Like I said, I will continue to... Uh, be homebound for a couple of days, working from home, uh, but uh, back in the office in normal schedule on Wednesday, and look forward to seeing everyone uh, in our Wednesday night Bible study uh, this coming Wednesday evening. Uh, glad to see several that have joined in and are taking part. Uh, one from Cameroon in Africa. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, the Trollingers, Jerry Beverly, from not quite as far away, uh, but all the way to Canton. And so it's great to have you all with us, Larry and Lynn Murphy. And others I know will join us either live or will join the recording. And so uh, grateful for that. This morning, my brother Donnie Carnison preached a great lesson at West Irwin Church in my absence. Jordan and I worshiped together online. And uh, what a wonderful message he had uh, from the story of Jesus um, uh, chasing the money changers out of the temple and turning over the tables making a whip of cords and being very aggressive and assertive in, um, in maintaining that uh, that was wrong and uh, doing something about it. It was, a, it was a great, great lesson. When Jesus cleans the house, and uh, that, was, um, that was a great message, brother. So I'm thankful for that, thankful for Davey Carter for subbing for me in my Bible classes this past Wednesday night and this morning. And uh, uh, what a blessing it is to work with such wonderful friends. Uh, all of my co-workers at West Irwin in the office and uh, are, are just great, great friends. And it's a blessing. It's a real, true blessing to be able to say that and to be able to know that when I walk out the door and have to turn my responsibilities over to somebody else like I had to do this past week, including today, it's, uh, um, there's no, no, nothing stops anything, nothing slows down. It is a great, great blessing. To, to be very much assured that I leave that in great hands. And so that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, several others that are joining on. My sister, Barbara Caskey, my big sister, older sister. How do I say that, Barbara? 
Um, well, Barbara Kapke, my sister, uh, and uh, from, a, from my sister from other parents, um, love her so much. We have such good fun together, and we truly have a brother-sister relationship because we kind of pick on each other. She seems to always have the last word, which, again, brother-sister relationship. But all of that is fun, but let's get down to business, shall we? We have a lot to cover today. We're in Mark chapter 2, and the lesson is called The Audacity of Jesus. Um, and when you right-click on the word audacity, isn't it great that we can right-click to find synonyms and find words that maybe fit better than the one that I was thinking? Not, not that I've ever done that in getting ready for a sermon. No, I, I have to I think that right off the top of my head. But if you right-click on audacity, then you get some things like daring, boldness, courage, bravery, nerve. Um, and, and those all describe Jesus, don't they? They really do. And Mark chapter 2 is one of those chapters where we really see that in a very real way. Um, you know, there's a, I, I was thinking about this book um, from Philip Yancey, The Jesus I Never Knew, uh, from several years ago. Wonderful book, as I was uh, listening to Donald Carnival's wonderful sermon this morning uh, on uh, Jesus clearing the temple and clearing our house, cleaning our house. And uh, that's, a, that's a great, great book because we, we sometimes feel like uh, Jesus is this kind of almost effeminate-looking uh, person from the, uh, and acting from the Middle Ages portraits that we see where Jesus is shown that way. Uh, and when you read the Gospel, uh, he is anything but. I mean, he was strong, he was forceful, he was aggressive, he was assertive, he was always kind always did the right thing, never out of control, uh, but he, he was uh, someone who was very assured and confident in his actions, and he acted. Uh, he acted, and when, uh, uh, when uh, a real firm hand uh, was called for and what he had to say, he said it, and he did it. And um, Mark, Mark chapter 2 describes that. Um, uh, Martin Luther King, and we just celebrated uh, the Martin Luther King holiday, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., from his wonderful acceptance speech when he received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, I read that speech this past week, and it is a wonderful speech. I encourage you to read that. Interesting how timely it is for us uh, today, uh, um, um, 60, almost 60 years later. Uh, but he said this, I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered men have torn down, men other-centered can build up. We have to be other-centered if we are going to follow Christ. Christ, if Christ is anything and calls us to be anything, he calls us to be other-centered and not self-centered, and that is specifically God-centered. Uh, those two great commands, as Jesus told us, to love God, first of all, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, those things should be the center of our lives. Uh, and that's what Jesus calls us to do. Of course, long before Dr. King, uh, there was a man who was also very uh, audacious in his teaching and in his life. Uh, and he was one whom Dr. King sought uh, to follow as well. And that, of course is Jesus of Nazareth. And in Mark 2, we find a few instances of the audacity of Jesus. And so I want us to look at those uh, few instances uh, today, uh, this afternoon, for a few minutes. 
Uh, first of all, Jesus had the audacity to forgive sin. But not just the audacity in this case. Jesus had the authority to forgive sin. And he demonstrated that. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, Mark 2, 1 through 12, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Uh, that's where his home base was, remember, uh, in the northern province of Galilee. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. We don't think of Jesus sometimes as a preacher. We think of him going around doing good, as Peter describes him to Cornelius in Acts 10, going around healing people, doing miraculous signs. But Jesus was first and foremost a preacher. Um, and he taught with authority, as we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew chapter 7. Mark attests that same thing. Um, Jesus preached the word to them. Mark 2, verse 3. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. I know you're familiar with this story. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I preached this message before, and when I did, it was uh, I, I entitled it, Sometimes You Have to Go Through the Roof. <laughs> and I think sometimes you do. Again, never out of control, uh, never letting anger get away from you. But sometimes you have to uh, take extra measures. And this, this man's friends were willing to do that. They were able to get through the roof, of course, homes in the first century uh, in Galilee, much different than the roof today. That would be far more difficult. Um, but they did that. They did that because the crowd was so great and they wanted their friend uh, to be healed by Jesus so desperately that they brought him up on the roof, they made a hole in the roof, and they lowered the man on the mat uh, so that he could be there in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus surprises everybody because he doesn't tell him, get up and walk. Your faith and your faith of your friends has healed you. He doesn't say that at all in this case. And he does this a few times in the gospel. In this case, he pronounces spiritual healing. Son, your sins are forgiven. And that's surprising. Uh, that one comes kind of out of left field. That's not what we expect him to say and to do. And Jesus has every intention of healing the man physically as well. But he begins with spiritual healing. He begins by forgiving the man of his sins. And I wonder how they all responded. Uh, but we don't have to wonder how the religious leaders around Jesus responded. Mark tells us that in the next two verses. Verses 6 and 7 of Mark 2. Now some teachers of the law, or scribes, were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Do they have a point? They have a great point. They are exactly right. Uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? Interestingly enough that when Jesus was ultimately arrested and convicted uh, at the end of the gospel, it was this exact thing, it was this exact charge that he had committed blasphemy by claiming to be God, by claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus Throughout his ministry at times when those people would come and would fall at his feet and worship him, he never 
turned them away. He accepted their worship. That's not true of Peter and Paul when we see individuals upon their great work trying to do that with them. Even the angel that John uh, tries to worship in Revelation tells him, get up, I'm just a messenger. Uh, the one that you are to worship is God alone. Well, Jesus never does. Why? Because he is God. Uh, Colossians that we've been studying on Tuesdays and Thursdays and our Facebook study uh, at 3 p.m. Uh, Colossians says that all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus in a bodily form. Uh, and here we see that Jesus pronounces forgiveness upon this man, something only God can do. Um, and so the religious leaders get that. They understand that. And they say, look, you're blasphemy. And I love what C.S. Lewis long ago did uh, when he described Jesus and the options that we have for what Jesus would be. He said, perhaps he's legend. Uh, perhaps he is a liar. Perhaps he's a lunatic. Or perhaps he is Lord. A legend in that, well, there. He, he never existed. It's all made up. And we know that history, history, uh, outside of the Bible, uh, uh, proves that Jesus actually lived and was actually crucified. Um, and could he be a lunatic? Could, was he just crazy? Well, obviously, these are not the actions of a crazy man. Perhaps he's a liar. Well, if he was a liar, a few things. Number one, would he be able to do the incredible things that he did? And number two, would he have died for something that he knew was a lie? And I think that's a great uh, reason to believe uh, the New Testament and the apostles and others who gave their lives, suffered so much for the cause of Christ. Were they just lying? Well, obviously, if you're doing something to help your life and to enhance your position that you know is a lie when it begins to destroy you and even burden you physically and emotionally and even threaten your physical life, that's when you say, no, no, just kidding, just kidding. Well, obviously, the followers of Jesus never did that because they saw him dead and they saw him raised alive. <clears throat> and Jesus himself uh, would not back down even when it cost him his life. And so that leaves you with one thing, Lord. He is who he said he was. And he's going to prove that here as well. Um, and so verses 8 through 12 for the rest of this passage. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. They, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Of course, only God can forgive sins, but if you're talking about what you know can verify at the moment, then that's what Jesus means when he says, Which is easier, to tell the man your sins are forgiven or to tell him get up and walk? Well, if Jesus tells him to get up and walk, and he doesn't, that's pretty easily disproved right there. If he says your sins are forgiven, and they're really not, no one knows until we get before the judgment seat of God. But when he tells him to get up and walk, everyone knows. 
everyone did know. They saw him get up, they saw him take his nap, and they saw him get up and walk, and they were all amazed. He did that right in front of them all. And that's the thing about Scripture and about the story of Jesus, including the resurrection, including the beginning, the first few decades of the church that we read about in the book of Acts, and we read letters about in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, this, this didn't happen uh, off in some corner. This happened in public. This happened inside of everyone. And if there was ever any reason why this could have been uh, discredited and destroyed, they would have done it. But they never did because it was true. Because Jesus actually did this. He really is the Son of God. And Jesus, Jesus demonstrates that he does have the authority to forgive sins by, um, by telling the man to get up and walk and to heal and to heal him, and he does just that. Jesus had the audacity and the authority to forgive sin. Uh, next, in the next few verses, Mark records how Jesus had the audacity to socialize with sinners. And even more, not just to socialize with sinners, but to call one of the most disrespected men of his generation to be one of his closest disciples, to be one of the twelve uh, Mark 2, beginning at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. Again, teaching, preaching. This was what Jesus was called to do. Verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi. No, I had you some beans and rice over there. Collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners Chips were eating with him and his disciples. But there were many who followed him. The first day. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, interesting that we uh, read about this man, Levi, also called Matthew. Uh, he's called Levi here in, uh, when Jesus calls him to be his disciple. But later on, as we read about him, he's referred to as Matthew. Uh, Levi, of course, being a very Jewish name, very Jewish name. Uh, Matthew being uh, more common in the Greek world. Um, but Jesus calls him, and the significant thing here is not just his name. The significant thing here is his profession. Um, even during tax season, it's impossible for us to appreciate um, the, um, the feeling that the rest of the Jews had toward their own uh, brethren who had sold themselves out uh, for money to the leadership of the Jews and the leadership of the Roman Empire by being tax collectors. They were, they were in no way like our, our IRS workers today, who by and large I firmly believe, and I don't so, I firmly believe are honest people doing honest work who genuinely care about their jobs and are trying to provide for their families in honest ways. That was not true in the first century. Uh, in the first century, they would skim off the top. They would take more than they should uh, in order to pocket the rest. Well, Jesus stops at this man's booth, and he calls him to be one of his disciples. Zacchaeus, remember the wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree in Luke 19? He also was a tax collector, 
and was also so struck that Jesus stopped and talked with him and even went to his house. Uh, just like he goes with Matthew here, uh, that he repented and he was willing to pay back far more uh, than what he had defrauded people of. Jesus had that effect on people, and here he goes and eats dinner at Matthew's house. And who is who is going to go? Who's going to be there? Well, it's going to be the people who would associate with a tax collector. Others like him who were outcast by the society. Others who were looked down upon because of one thing or another just like Matthew. Um, as we read about this account in Luke, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, and in Luke chapter 5, we, we hear them saying, look, why, why, does your, why does your master do this? And not asking Jesus, it seems, but asking his disciples. And, um, and Jesus gets it. He understands what they're doing. But he, what he does is he quotes Hosea 6 in Matthew chapter 9. And he tells them, look, you need to go back and read your Bible. You need to know what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. All you people are being unmerciful and cruel and uh, inconsiderate and unloving to Matthew and those like him that are here. Uh, Jesus said, look, I the healthy people don't need a doctor. It's the ones who are sick. I've called the ones who are sick and who know it and are, who are willing enough to acknowledge that, that they will go to the doctor, the spiritual doctor. They'll come and hear the word of the Lord from Jesus himself. Uh, Matthew was thrilled to have Jesus at his house, and Jesus was thrilled uh, to go there. And again, in this case, Jesus has, is very audacious. He doesn't just talk about the kingdom. He doesn't just preach about the kingdom. He actually demonstrates. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Let me not just tell you what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me show you what Jesus is saying. And so he goes. And first of all, he calls Matthew to be one of his closest disciples. Later on, as we know, this is the Matthew who will write the gospel of Matthew. Such an important part of our New Testament. Uh, very Jewish, uh, very uh, much interested in seeking to establish that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, being the son of Abraham, the son of David. And throughout the Gospel of Matthew, as we saw in our Facebook study earlier uh, last year, uh, so in much trying to prove Jesus to be the Messiah, the, the Christ, the Savior. Uh, and he does that by quoting the Bible, quoting what we call the Old Testament, uh, time and time again. Uh, here Jesus reaches back to Hosea as we read uh, in Matthew's version in Matthew 9, and says, look, it's not the sick who need the doctor. It's not the well who need the doctor. It's the sick. Learn. Go back and read Isaiah 6 again. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, Jesus reaches out to those who are outcast, just as he did in the Beatitudes, when he called people blessed who our society, our culture, um, feels like they're, they're not really blessed. They're having a hard time. The persecuted, those who mourn, um, still Jesus calls them uh, blessed. And we read that. We see that. Uh, and that's what Jesus calls on us to do and to be as well. Jesus had the audacity to associate with sinners, but not to uh, let them affect him, but to have an effect good on them. We see that with Matthew. We see that with uh, Zacchaeus. 
We see that with uh, the uh, woman that he forgave and, and accepted who anointed his feet. We see that time and time and time again. And it calls us to ask ourselves, what do I think of society that Am I really willing to reach out to them like Jesus does? Um, I pray that we will do better at that. Um, finally, Jesus had the audacity to call for change. We talked about this. I'm studying on Sunday mornings in our Bible class, one of our adult Bible classes at West Irwin here in Tyler. On Sunday mornings, I, we're using a book from the wonderful Amy Morin's great book, uh, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And we spoke about change uh, uh, last week in that great chapter that she had. Uh, how mentally strong people are willing. They, they don't shy away from change. They think it through. Uh, but they're willing to do that when it's the right thing to do. Well, we see in these verses, in, in Mark 2, beginning at verse uh, uh, 18, that Jesus was willing to do that as well. Um, Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were asking. Some people came and asked me, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, verse 19, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the mere worse. And no one pours new wine into old wine. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wine skins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. Very interesting stories that Jesus tells here. And, uh, and it's interesting how he does that. They, they, all this comes from the question of, why aren't you and your disciples fasting? How come? And Jesus says, well, it's a different time right now. It's a different time right now. And uh, you may not understand that, but, but it is. And he uses a few different illustrations here. One is the bridegroom. The presence of the bridegroom with his buddies, everybody's having a great time. But there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. And he says, that's when they will fast. They don't fast anymore now because... I'm with him. And he says the same thing to them in those closing chapters in the Gospel of John and the Epheron. When he tells them, look, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. My presence will remain. I will send my spirit, the comforter, and he will comfort you and he will guide you. Uh, what a great, great blessing that the Holy Spirit is that lives inside of us and that continues to be our comfort uh, and our guide through the word that we have. Uh, the Bible. It's such a great, great thing that the Holy Spirit is present even today. Uh, here Jesus tells them, look, they're, they're not going to fast while I'm, while I'm with them, but there, there will be a time that will come when they fast. Um, we understand that uh, disciples in the first century, they did, they did fast. The Jews had to fast on one day here on the Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But for the New Testament church, there were several times when they fasted, and you probably remember that. And there were several times when Jesus and his disciples fasted. He fasted before the temptation uh, in Matthew 4 and was for 40 days. Uh, he fasted that night, prayed all night long before uh, uh, he was arrested. Uh, he had, had shared that Passover meal with the disciples. And then during that long night, he prayed uh, and he 
advances. Um, we see other times when Jesus stayed up all night praying before he chose the 12 apostles. Uh, one instance of that. Uh, Jesus didn't call us and command us to fast like they did in the Old Testament during those times uh, on the Day of Atonement. But we see there are lots of opportunities that the New Testament church took and that they did uh, as they went out. Remember when Paul and Barnabas were going to be selected and were going to go out and go on what we call Paul's first mission journey, that church at Antioch prayed and fasted and sent them out. Uh, there are other instances in the New Testament that talk about fasting, and I, I don't think it's something that we can bind on people today, and it's certainly not something that you want to do uh, without consulting your doctor if you have certain medical conditions, such as diabetes or other conditions. You want to be careful about that. Uh, certainly, Jesus wants us to be wise and not check our brain at the door and deliberately uh, harm ourselves. But at the same time, fasting is a call to be self-discipline. Uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 9 of how he beats his body and makes it his slave, not beating in a physical way, but rather uh, being uh, self-discipline to the extent that he, he, he makes sure uh, that the things that he wants to do, that he has every right to do uh, physically, that, that his body knows that he's the one calling the shots, that he's the one that's in charge. And I think that's a very important thing for us to remember. I think fasting is very appropriate today. Whether you're fasting from food and drink, uh, again, uh, in a wise way, uh, but a way where you actually spend extra time in devotion to God. Or if you're fasting from something else, something you have every right uh, to participate in and to do, but that is something that you treasure so much of this physical life that you're thinking, you know, I think I need to do without that. Uh, for a few days, for a week, uh, for a month. I think that's a, a really good thing. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of people coming up will will fast for Lent, giving up something for Lent, as they say, uh, those 40 days before uh, uh, Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, at times we have called that into question, but you know, I, I remember a young woman that I met uh, years ago who... Uh, was not from the Church of Christ, and uh, one one uh, day I saw her the day after Ash Wednesday, and she had the the cross on her forehead, and she had indicated that she had gone again, not a member of the Church of Christ, but she had gone and uh, was fasting now for for Lent, and I thought it made me stop and think because this woman was not being arrogant about it; she wasn't trying to force her use on anybody else. She didn't think she was better than anybody else because of that. Uh, but but it was something that she did out of a, a great conscience and, con and conviction. And I thought to myself, wow, when have I done that? Have I done that? Instead, I get lost in saying, well, you shouldn't do that. You don't have to do that. Don't make a big deal about that. All of those may be good things to discuss, but underneath all of those things, it's also the call to say, well, you know, <laughs> Christians in the early church fasted. Uh, Jesus said, look, when the bridegroom is taken away, my disciples will fast at times. And so I think it's important for us to remember we need to tell our bodies who's in charge. We need to remind ourselves uh, that we give ourselves to God. I think that's what fasting does. And so Jesus talks about the bride and the bridegroom. He talks about the, 
uh, uh, putting uh, a, a, a patch, sewing a patch of untrunked cloth of trash can. on an old garment, one that's already shrunk, that's already changed, and it's not going to change anymore, and yet now you put a patch on there that will. Also, uh, pouring new wine into old wineskins, old wineskins that are already expanded, and now you have the new wine in there, and it's going to uh, expand and ferment, and, and everything's going to be ruined, unless you do it right. I think that Jesus is saying, look, there's, uh, Mark has this parable here, uh, and, I, and it seems like he's saying, look, you need, to, you need to have old and new, as he says in other places. Uh, be willing to accept that. Um, be willing to change. Be willing to be tested. Um, they, um, they were very uncomfortable that Jesus and his disciples were different than what they expected. Even this case, John and his disciples were not so different. It was not unusual for someone like John the Baptist or Jesus and their disciples to fast. Uh, that's what they had come to expect. But yet Jesus, Jesus didn't. And in another place, he, he reminds them, he says, you know, we can't please you guys. Uh, John came fasting and praying and wearing weird things, and you said he's got a devil. And I come, and my disciples, and we're eating, and we're drinking, and we're going to wedding receptions, and all of these things, and you say that we're gluttons and drunkards. No matter what Jesus said or did, they were going to criticize him, because they were threatened by him, because he was authentic. And in his authentic nature, he was just audacious enough to call people to follow him. And he calls us to follow him as well. Uh, there are so many times where Jesus would refuse to ignore the evil and the sins and the arrogance that he saw around him uh, from those who claim to be religious and especially from those who claim to be religious leaders. And so he calls Matthew, this tax collector. He calls this uh, man who was uh, a sinner and, and forgives his sin and then allows him uh, to get up and Walk. It's just amazing the things that Jesus calls on us to do. He responds to their questions, to him and his disciples, by calling them back to the word of God. Hosea 6, as we read in Matthew chapter 9's account of the calling of Levi uh, or Matthew. Jesus saying, remember those words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, some people have written in describing Jesus, maybe it's important for us to grasp small and seemingly insignificant opportunities to break social boundaries. You know, Jesus did some pretty big things. But when he called Matthew, that was a big thing, and yet it was something that was didn't solve all the problems, but it was a step. Uh, when he calls this man and tells him his sins are forgiven, it was a big thing, but it was only a step. I think they're right. I think we look around us and we see a world that really needs a lot of peace and a lot of calm, and a lot of healing, and a lot of love. Come on, Whatever down. little opportunities you have this week to do that, I hope that you will follow the example of Jesus and just be audacious enough to love your neighbor as yourself. God bless you and help.